So we'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 9 today, starting in uh, verse 18. We'll be in verse 18 to 34. In the previous passage, and it's been a while, so hopefully your, your memory banks are working, but in the previous passage, uh, we see that Jesus, when he was asked about fasting, um, told the hearers that there was more reason to feast than there was to fast. The reason is joy and not mourning. Prior to that, he had made a public claim that, that he was, in fact, God. Not surprisingly, however, the religious leaders of the day didn't believe the claim, nor did they fully recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In our passage today, we'll actually see the severity of the blindness of the religious leaders of Jesus' day in that they attribute uh, His work to that of the devil. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18 says that while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well." And Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players in the crowd making commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the districts. So we'll pause there for a moment and kind of set the stage. So Jesus was speaking to the people uh, about joy. And as he was doing this, a man uh, came to him who was a ruler. And he had news that his daughter had just died, and he knelt before Jesus and made a request simply to touch the girl to restore her to life. Now, in Mark's account and Luke's account, uh, has a little bit of a different story. It says that the girl was dying, uh, not that she had already died, but that she was dying. We're told in their accounts that she was about 12 years old and that this ruler was a man named Jairus. And, and Mark's account and Luke's account said that he fell at Jesus' feet and he implored him to make her well. So the desperation of a father with a sick and dying daughter. Now, the religious leaders, as, as we know, uh, they get kind of a bad rap in the Bible, and, and they've, they've earned it, right? rightfully so. Uh, but this man, Jairus, uh, he was a religious ruler and somehow um, recognized, at least to some extent, who, who Jesus was, recognized Jesus uh, enough to where he would fall at his feet and implore him um, to heal his daughter. Given the circle that this man was a part of, he, he really shouldn't have, shouldn't have been doing this. But again, the desperation of a father we see here. And remarkably, Jesus didn't question him. Did, did, did you catch what happened? That he came and he implored Jesus, he fell at his feet, uh, and Jesus just got up and went with him. Now, me, if this happened to me, I would have a lot of questions in the moment. Tell, tell me, like, what's going on here? Where, where, how far are we going? Where... I would just have a lot of questions, and this, the Bible tells us that Jesus just got up and went with the man. And so that's remarkable. And then, as he's going, Jesus encounters 
a woman in the crowd who had an issue of bleeding uh, over a span also, we're told, of 12 years. Now, the nature of this problem, according to theologians, was a menstrual problem, and it was a severe and significant health issue. According to the Levitical law, the Old Testament law, this would have made this woman ceremonially unclean. And so this woman shouldn't have been out in public, let let alone in the midst of a huge crowd, because anybody that would come in contact with this woman would also be considered unclean. And there were all kinds of rituals and hoops that you would jump through in order to cleanse yourself to become clean again. And so this was a bold move uh, on the part of a desperate woman with a health issue. Mark and Luke, in their account, both tell us that she had suffered much. So this was a severe issue. And they also tell us that she had spent all of her money on doctors. And so she had depleted what she had uh, in trying to get this issue solved to no avail. So again, you you can imagine the desperation uh, that this woman might have had. The doctors ultimately couldn't help her. And to make it even worse, she was in a crowd where she shouldn't have been, in a place where she shouldn't have been, trying to get in touch with a man with whom she shouldn't have been in contact either. And to make it even worse, Jesus should not have engaged with this woman either. She was an absolute outcast. That being said, we see that this woman demonstrated her faith in the belief that simply touching the garment of Jesus would make her well. That sounds kind of crazy, right? But, but this woman had a level of faith that if I can just get close enough to Jesus to touch His garment, then that will make me well. And that's exactly what happened. She got near enough in this crowd and this was, this was a large crowd. Like This wasn't just a few people. Like She had to really make her way through the crowd, and she approaches D- Jesus, and she touches His garment. And in a remarkable statement, Jesus refers to this unclean woman not as an unclean woman. Again, if this were me and this happened, I, I would have had some questions. Who are you? How did you get here? Why, why are you here? Why did you touch me? Jesus doesn't seem to ask any of those questions he refers to this unclean outcast as his daughter. Don't let that be lost on us. That's a remarkable statement. You can imagine the disdain of everybody around that this unclean woman was even there to begin with, let alone that she had engaged Jesus. And he refers to her simply as daughter, and he tells her that her faith has made her well. And when we dig into the Greek, this word of faith, that her faith has made her well, it's the same word that elsewhere is translated as healed or saved. So Jesus is talking about more than just this issue of bleeding here. right? She had faith and her, her issue that the doctors couldn't solve got solved in an instant, but Jesus tells her it's your faith that has saved you. And in this instance, it's not the faith of the woman that's necessarily meritorious. It's not, Jesus isn't saying because you believed enough that you've been made well or that you've been saved. Jesus isn't saying because you you dug down deep and believed hard enough that you mustered up enough that you've been saved. The Bible tells us that we are saved as an act of grace, by grace, through faith in Christ. Christ is the one who is meritorious, not us. 
The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 even that it's Jesus who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, He's the one that grants us the faith that we need in order to be saved. And so the merit is not on the part of this woman. The merit is not on the part of of you and I, but the merit is on the part of Christ and what He's done. And so we have a, a dying girl who is 12 years old. We have a sick woman who has been sick for 12 years. I don't really know the significance of, of the two 12 years, but, but I think it's meant to kind of tie this story together in what Jesus is doing here. And as the faith of this daughter has made her well, the story goes back to the little girl. So Mark and Luke tell us that in this moment of the news of the girl's death came. They also tell us in another remarkable statement that Jesus tells Jairus, the religious leader, the desperate father, do not fear, only believe. Jesus arrives on scene to a crowd that was mourning. Matthew's account references the flute players. This would have been essentially a wake happening when Jesus shows up on scene. And they were mourning and they were wailing and they were weeping. We attended a memorial service earlier this week and and lots of tears flowed at this memorial service. This is the scene that's happening here. Jesus arrives on scene to the crowd. The crowd was put outside the house and Jesus goes in and he takes the girl by the hand. And you know what happened? She got up and she walked out. Now this too according to the Levitical law, touching a dead person would make one unclean. Ceremonially unclean. And again, lots of hoops to jump through, lots of things to do to go from unclean to clean. It was was work. And Jesus touches this dead girl who does not remain dead. Remarkable miracle. And so we have kind of two, two stories in one here. Jesus was on his way to an encounter, a dead girl, and meets a woman who is unclean, engages with her, makes her well, touches a dead girl, also making him unclean, and she rises from the dead. An incredible miracle of Jesus, two incredible miracles of Jesus. And I don't want it to be lost on us that Jesus... In these two accounts, what what is Matthew trying to tell us here? He's trying to show us that Jesus was willing to make himself unclean so that we could be clean. We, We get kind of a foreshadowing of what happens eventually on the cross. Jesus taking on himself the sin of all humanity, taking on the unrighteousness of all of humanity, satisfying the wrath of God, the just wrath of God on unrighteousness and making a way for us unclean, unrighteous, unholy sinners to be clean. Don't let that be lost on us today. Only God can command death, and only God is righteous, and only God can impute His righteousness to you and me who are not righteous. Matthew's trying to show us something here in these two accounts. Then in verse 27, Jesus encounters some blind men. Verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, so, so he had just 
resurrected this young girl from the dead. The report of it went throughout all the district, we're told. And as he passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away, and they spread his fame throughout all of the district. And so, kind of this whole section of Matthew is just boom, 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 boom. Jesus kind of going from one place to the next, doing his thing and encountering people with issues. And so he encounters these two blind men. Now, we would assume that the blind men probably had help finding and connecting with Jesus as they probably were not able to do this on their own. So they probably had people uh, helping them uh, to know there's Jesus. It says that they followed him, and as they were following him, they cried aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, this is a telling statement that these blind men make, have mercy on us, son of David. This is a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. These blind men knew something about who Jesus was, as evidenced by the fact that they referred to him as the son of David. And Jesus asks them, says they entered the house, they came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And I love it when Jesus asks questions because Jesus never lacks the answer. He doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know something. Right? The questions that Jesus asks are, are for the, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the people whom he's asking the questions to. And he asks these blind men, do you believe that I can do what you ask? And of course, these blind men respond in the affirmative that they believe. And, and maybe we have, just like we had a desperate father and we had a desperate woman with a health issue, we have some desperate blind men. We don't know how old these blind men are. Uh, but it refers to them as men, and so they're probably adults, right? They're probably not young boys, they're, they're adults. So we don't know when they went blind. We don't know if they were born blind. We don't know uh, if they became blind because of some accident that happened in their life. We just know that these men are blind. Now, this is a time in history when ADA wasn't a thing. The technology that we have today was not in play back then. Being blind really hampered you in society in a way that we might not be able to imagine. Being blind like this quite possibly made these men outcast. They needed somebody to do for them, to help them with the most basic things in life. And so you can imagine a level of desperation even in these men crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Even the cry, have mercy shows us that they have some desperation in them. And so again, Jesus asked the question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes in verse 29, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And again, we see faith at play, but faith of the blind men not being the thing that deserves merit. It's not the faith of the blind men that's meritorious here. It's Jesus and what he's done uh, that's mer- meritorious. There, there's a thread of 
Christendom that would believe in a prosperity theology that might take something from this to say that if we have enough faith, if we believe enough in God, if we believe hard enough, if we do for God, He'll do for us. We would say that's not a biblical teaching. But, but there is within Christendom this, this idea that if I get my stuff together and if I believe hard enough, if I read enough, if, I'm, if I learn enough, that, that that earns some favor from God. And that's antithetical to the message of the gospel. And so the merit here, again, is not on the faith of the blind men who simply asked, help. Their desperation is certainly something. But the merit belongs to Jesus who simply, by touching them, healed their blindness. Now, we can do a lot of things even today with our technology, but I don't think we've been able to restore sight to the blind. I don't think we can do that. It's a big deal. And Jesus simply by touching them, restored the sight of this men, of these men. And so we see in this God's compassionate will and His merciful love to heal the afflicted. Now, does this mean that God heals the afflicted every time? No, that doesn't happen every time. We see throughout the gospel accounts that, that Jesus did, in fact, heal people. But we don't see it as necessarily the normative thing that every time someone asks Jesus to fix them, that He fixes them. He's not our genie in a bottle. It's not that we just rub the lamp the right way and then He does our bidding. That, that's, not, that's not Jesus. But He did heal these blind men to show us something about who He is, to show us His compassion, to show us His power over something that humans are powerless over. It says that their eyes were open in verse 30, and then Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. And I don't understand this. I don't understand why Jesus would do this and say, don't tell anybody about this. I don't know why, but he told these men sternly, don't tell anybody about this. And what did the men do? They told everybody about it, right? It says that they went and they spread his fame throughout all of the districts. So this wasn't just telling their buddies hey, you'll never guess what happened to me today. This, this was them getting on the local news and saying, guess what happened to me today? And spreading his fame throughout all of the district. And I, and I think, while not the main point of the text, I think we can learn something about this. What, one of the reasons that we have a sharing time here during our service is so that we can spread Jesus' fame, at least among our local congregation, <laughs> hopefully beyond that. I have other pastor buddies that are flabbergasted at the fact that we pass around an open mic. They don't get it. <laughs> but we do to give you an opportunity to spread Jesus' fame. To say, here's what God has done for me. We give you an opportunity to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David, <laughs> in, in prayer. And these men went and spread his fame throughout all the districts. So, so the first account that we have with the young girl and the woman, it says that the report went throughout all of the districts. So it doesn't really say who gave the report, but you can imagine it with a crowd, uh, both uh, with the, the woman with the discharge of blood and the girl at her wake, that, like there were crowds in both places, and so word spread. Jesus heals a couple of blind men, and they went out, and they spread his fame throughout all the districts. So they went everywhere that they could to tell everybody who would listen to them. 
And then in verse 32, it says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So another just kind of boom, 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 as Jesus was finishing up with the blind man, someone brings to them a demon-oppressed man. Now the Bible gives us a little bit of a picture, not in this account that we're in today, but gives us a picture of what demon-oppressed people are like, and they're funky. Um, It's like everybody knows who the demon-oppressed people are. There's no question about who the demon-oppressed people are. Somehow they bring this demon-oppressed man who also happened to be mute, so he couldn't speak. Uh, it's also possible that he was deaf, um, but at least couldn't speak, was brought to Jesus. And we're not really told what happened. It just says in verse 30 that when the demon had been cast out. So we don't know how things went down, what Jesus did, uh, or anything. And this man, it's worth noting in contrast to the other two accounts, uh, didn't seem to have any faith. He, people brought him to Jesus We don't know if he was willingly or unwillingly brought to Jesus, but my guess would be maybe not so willingly brought to Jesus. But but we don't see any faith on the part of this demon-oppressed man that's at play here. But we see that Jesus had cast out the demon, and as evidence of the demon being cast out, this mute man spoke. So again, a big deal. I don't think we can even do that with our technology today. I don't think we can restore a voice to somebody that doesn't have it. I've not heard of that happening. Um, and so this is a big deal uh, that Jesus had done this. And the crowds marveled. You can imagine if you were in this crowd that you would marvel uh, at what had just happened. They were saying things like, we've never seen anything like this. Nothing like this has ever happened in all of Israel. That's a big statement. Jesus did a lot of things. And for them to say nothing like this has ever happened, uh, pretty big deal. So the demon was cast out, the man spoke, the crowds marveled, but how did the religious leaders, how did the religious leaders respond? How did the church of the day, how did the church respond? He casts out demons by the prince of demons, right? They discredit what happened. The religious people, the people that should have been kind of most on board with this, looked at it and said, that guy's working for the devil. It's the devil's work that he did. And this is kind of par for the course with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They just didn't get who he was or what he was doing. And so they were blind to this. And so we have these three accounts of Jesus doing miraculous healings, very miraculous healings, fixing a medical issue, raising a girl from the dead, casting out a demon, restoring sight to the blind. We see some very unlikely people. We see a religious leader who also happens to be a desperate father and in his desperation goes to Jesus. We see a woman who is an outcast to society and in her desperation, she approaches Jesus. We see Two unclean people, an unclean woman uh, and a dead girl who would have been considered unclean. We see 
people falling at Jesus' feet. So we see this religious leader, Jairus, falling at Jesus' feet in his desperation. This woman with the issue of blood falling at Jesus' feet. And in both instances, Jesus reaches out and touches. And he heals. We see with the blind men that he reaches out and touches them and he heals. So we see desperation. We see faith. We see compassion on the part of Jesus. I've spent a lot of years working kind of in the trenches sometimes with kind of the downcast and the down and out of society. We, you all know we have, have a warming shelter in Lapine, and that brings in a sketchy crowd. Um, other times in my life, I've, I've you know, worked at a soup kitchen. I've, uh, I've encountered some pretty funky people. And, and when I think of this, this demon-oppressed man who was brought to Jesus, I think of some of the people that I've worked with. Not that I would say that about any of them, but just seeing people in just kind of weird places in life with mental issues. <laughs> and it's hard. And, and oftentimes, my first reaction to those kind of people is to turn the other way. And we see Jesus here. He doesn't turn the other way. He helps this man who was demon-oppressed. And we don't even read that like there was a struggle with it. That He just compassionately and mercifully, mercifully <laughs> helps this man who was a reject of society and who no one else would help. And so when we put all these accounts together, these three accounts of healings, we see a compassionate, merciful, loving willing Savior who is willing to engage with people that society at large is not willing to engage with. I think of a close friend of mine, one of my closest friends, his name's Kevin, and there, there was a time in my life where Kevin would pretty regularly call me that we, we had a guy in town who was in a wheelchair and he had a cast on his leg and you'd see him wheeling through town with, with his leg up and you know, he looked homeless and uh, he smelled and he just wasn't, nothing clean about the guy. And oftentimes you'd see him stuck in his wheelchair trying to get like up on a sidewalk, something like that, and people would drive by and honk at him, flip him off, whatever. And there was more than once where my friend Kevin would call him, I forget the guy's name, but he'd say, hey, you know, Bob is stuck, we need to go help him. And I was just kind of hanging, like, for real? But I didn't want to say no, and so I'd, Kevin would come pick me up, and we'd go help Bob, and we'd buy him a cup of coffee. And the whole time, like, oftentimes for me, I'm thinking, like, how can I get away from this guy? Like, okay, let's get him a cup of coffee and just leave him be. But Kevin would want to stop and engage with this guy and have a conversation with this guy. There were times where, um, you know, we'd help the guy get a hotel room and we'd go check in on him. Kevin would call, hey, we're going to go check on Bob today. I don't want to go check on Bob, but we're going to go check on Bob. There was another guy who uh, lived in a tent on the side of the road out in Mitchell. I don't know if you've ever been to Mitchell, but it's not close to anything. It's a little ways out. And there were times where Kevin would call me and say, hey, we're going to Mitchell. We're going to go take a bag of groceries to whatever. I can't remember that guy's name either. I'm really bad with names. But it would be a, you know, an hour drive there and an hour drive back. Like it would wreck half a day. 
to go out there and take groceries to this guy who willingly chose to live in a tent on the side of the road out in the middle of nowhere. Like he didn't choose to live in a tent close to the grocery store. He chose to live in a tent an hour away from the grocery store. My thought was, why do we have to take this guy groceries? Kevin did that a lot for me, and it helped me. It it helped me to realize that God cares for these people that society doesn't care about. It helped me to realize that, that God loves the weirdos and God loves the difficult people and God loves the people that have mental issues and, and can't make smart choices in life. God loves the people that can't hold down a job. God loves the people who are entitled and feel like society owes them a bag of groceries because they choose to live in a tent on the side of the road. God cares for those people and that's what we see in our passages today is that God cares for the rejects. God cares for the people that you and I struggle to care for. And I think a Christian attitude towards these things is that if God, if God cares for me, ergo, I should care for the things and the people that God cares about. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy at all. Jesus engages with some very unlikely people in these scenarios. And He doesn't give them a lecture about their station in life. He doesn't give them a lecture about the choices that they've made. He doesn't shake His head at them because they can't hold it together. He simply meets them where they're at. And He helps them. He serves them. He has compassion on them. He shows them mercy. And so I guess if I could leave you with any encouragement today is that we, as Christians, that we would endeavor to love the people that God loves, that we would endeavor to care for the things that God cares for, even if that means engaging people that we would not otherwise engage. And even if that means that nobody ever sees what we do, that like Christ, that we would show compassion for people that that might need, you know, we get a lot of people in our warming shelter, they need far more help than we can ever provide. They they need case management, and we're not caseworkers. But you know what? We can keep them warm for a night and put some food in their belly. We can hear their story. There's this kind of neat thing that happens through the winter season that at first, every year when we open our warming shelter, the people that come in, are, they're, they're offensive. They're a struggle. And we complain about, well, this person did this and this person did that. But when the middle of March rolls around and it's time to close the doors, we're thinking, man, we're going to miss these people. I hope they come back next year. What, what are they going to do between now and next year? Because once we start to realize that these are real human beings with real issues, they, they tend to grow on us and, and God does a thing in that. And so let's take from this today just the the call to the church to be compassionate, the call to the church to be merciful, the call to the church to serve the people that are difficult to serve and to love the people that are difficult to love and show people compassion that we might not think deserve to be shown compassion. And why would we do that? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has loved me at my worst. 
and served me at my worst and has been compassionate to me and merciful to me when I didn't deserve any of those things. And so our right response as a Christian is to be that for others. And again, not saying it's always easy. But there's something about when Christians are like the Christ, right? When we as Christians live like the Christ lived, and when we begin to exhibit some of the same traits in the way that we live that he showed when he was on earth. And so let me encourage us in that today that we would love and serve and care for and show compassion to the least of these. Father, we're grateful this morning, grateful for your word, grateful um, that you have done for us what you've done. We're grateful that uh, you have served us at our worst. We're grateful that you show us continual compassion, continual mercy. We're grateful, uh, God, that you have made unclean sinners holy and righteous um, through faith, by grace, through faith. So God, I pray that that wouldn't be lost on us today as we enter into 2023, that you would help us to endeavor to be people uh, who, uh, like the Christ, are loving and compassionate and merciful uh, to those in society, especially those who are not like us. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.